Hey there, friends. My name is Kyle Devlin, and this is Having a Blast. Having a Blast is a pop punk, punk rock, and emo podcast where we're going to be discussing all things punk rock ethos and personal development and the parallels within. We'll also be doing some deep dives on important albums and bands. I'm going to be talking to band members, producers, and a bunch of my friends. And I want to know what makes these people tick. How has being self-motivated moved them in the direction of their goals? We're going to have a lot of fun finding out. So without further ado, let's get into it. friends welcome to the show on today's episode i'm incredibly excited to be speaking with mr mike davenport of the legendary band the ataris mike joined the band just before they recorded blue skies broken hearts next 12 exits as well as the ep look forward to failure and that's where i discovered them on the fat records compilation and from the moment i heard san Dimas high school football rules i was immediately hooked one of my favorite bands love the ataris we cover a lot of ground in this episode i really appreciate Mike for taking the time. He was really transparent with me. We discussed the early days of the band. We talk about all the trials and tribulations of being on a major label, what it's like to be a gigantic band in the limelight. He gives an incredible Don Henley story. We talk about the success of In This Diary, San Dimas High School Football Rules, as well as the backstory behind doing the cover song, The Boys of Summer. So this is a fantastic conversation. I absolutely loved speaking with Mike. It was cool to hear him talk about the Ataris as well as Versus the World. He gives some hints that we might get some new music as well, which is really exciting. So I think you guys will enjoy this one. Without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Mr. Mike Davenport from the Ataris and Versus the World. times a charm yeah there we go awesome man very cool i appreciate you doing this man it's nice to meet you via zoom nice to meet you too we see each other on social media and i like what you do and so when you hit me up about it i was like oh yeah heck yeah and i saw your interview with ben and i thought that was really cool Thanks for agreeing to do it, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Ben, so just to give you a little bit of context, I used to be in a band back in the early 2000s. I played in various bands and we got to know the Yellow Card guys pretty early in their career around the One for the Kids era. And they, I was a teenager back then, but I booked one of their first shows in Kansas City. That's where I'm from. And got to know those guys really well. Right after they released One for the Kids, we played a bunch of shows with them. So we watched their career trajectory and they went on tour with you guys, right? I'm pretty sure you guys a run together. When you sent me your questions, what really struck me was that I never really thought about it, but the Fat Records tour for us, and we'll get into your questions later, but the Fat Records tour for us was very much what Yellow Card did on our tour. We were getting really big. We had signed to the majors and we did a tour that was one of my favorite tours ever was Yellow Card, Rufio, Sugar Colt, and the Ataris. And Yellow Card was opening band on that tour, but they were getting so big at the time 
that it was like, it was insane to see the response. And that's very similar to what the Ataris have happened to us on the Fat Records tour, which was my heroes on that tour, which was No Use for a Name, Good Riddance, Mad Caddies, and the Ataris opening. But I felt the same vibe for Yellow Card as we had on that tour, which was like, people were coming out super early. And as you know, as a guy that played in bands, that's very rare for people to come and check out the opening band. But it was really yeah. one of those kind of tours. And Yellow Card was in that. But we knew them from Santa Barbara. They had moved from Florida to Santa Barbara and to be on Lobster Records in Santa Barbara. And so we knew those guys from there. And that's why we took them on tour. That was sort of our Santa Barbara homies tour. That one there was Yellow Card, Sugar Colt, and the Ataris. We were all kind of living in Santa Barbara at the time. So... Yeah. And that makes sense now that I think about it, the connection with Marco, because he was playing with Sugar Cult at the time, right? He joined Sugar Cult. Okay. Yeah. We were friends with the Rufio guys as well. We played a bunch of shows with them. So they had a lot of hype as well. I mean, that was a killer tour. The package now. It was awesome, right? I mean, uh, some of those tours I look back on, even the the No Use, you know, Good Riddance, Mad Caddies, Ataris. Oh my gosh, those tours were so fun. and, And people really came out to them. They knew what they were seeing. It was, I hate to, to say history, but those were definitely historic tours. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned the fat tour because I went over to my parents' house over the holidays and I was going through my old closet and I found a bunch of old promotional tour flyers and things. And I actually have a big promotional poster from that fat tour. Wow. And the I, artwork was I, really cool. I don't even have anything from that tour. And I try to pride myself on keeping a lot of the stuff from my career. And uh, I try as hard as I can. I have what I call like my pop punk museum, which is someday I'm going to donate it all. So I don't know what I'm doing with it, but it's like, I have a hard time giving anything up. So sure. I know there are other guys in the band that are just like, they don't care about hanging on to this stuff, which is their vibe. That's totally cool with me. But for me, I just like hang on to it. So I'll sometimes go through, be organizing some of my stuff and I'll go through it and send pictures to, to the guys. And they're like, oh, cool. You still have that a backstage pass for the Metro or in Chicago, you know, or something like that. So yeah, it's like a time capsule, you know, it is history. There's a lot of great memories associated with that. The other thing is we didn't really have the ability to capture so many moments from that time period. The flyers remind me of the shows. I don't have pictures of them because we didn't have a camera. There's no, you know, yeah, there's no no iCloud. I mean, that's the thing about, like everything from 2010 Union Tour or versus the World Tours, things like that, I have on my iCloud that I can look back on and see. But anything before that, it's just hard pictures and flyers and things like that. Same. The first time I ever saw the Ataris was on that Fat Tour because I remember discovering you guys from Life in the Fat Land. I'm pretty sure that was the fat comp that had Fast Times on it and immediately went out and purchased, I'm pretty sure I went to a physical store and purchased the Look Forward to Failure EP. And I definitely want to ask you about that, but you posted a really great picture the other day, a picture of you from 1991. So I want to time travel a little bit before that fat tour. Can you tell me a little bit about the scene around that time growing up in Santa Barbara and just the California scene? Were you going up to the East Bay to hang out at Gilman Street? So I actually grew up in a place called Orchid, California, and that is in North Santa Barbara County. Okay. And Orchid is about an hour north. It's on the edge of Santa Barbara County. And we had our own little scene, Orchid, Lompoc, Santa Barbara, and we were all kind of co-mingled together. When I grew up and I had a proclivity to pop punk, I loved Social Distortion was pop punk in the early days the adolescents, those kind of bands. So I graduated from high school in 86. I'm a little older than Chris and Chris in the Ataris. 
I was okay. sort of, I was sort of like five years older than them. So I started a band and we started playing shows in Santa Barbara at a place called the Red Barn, which was classic. I, I saw No Effects and Bad Religion and all the bands when they were baby bands were playing at the Red Barn in the 80s. And so that got me going and I formed a band in about 88 called Jungle Fish. And Jungle Fish actually did really well. We ended up playing a lot of shows all over California and we played Gilman Street three times. And that picture was from one of those shows. Now, Jungle Fish was a little more hardcore than say the Ataris and Versus the World. We were more of a hardcore punk band. And I sang and played bass in that band. And I, I met a lot of the guys, the Offspring and No Effects, Fat Mike and things like that, that would later, uh, No Use for a Name, Jungle Fish played with No Use for a Name in the early days. A lot of those guys we met back then. And so it was a trip for them to see my progression from that band to the Ataris. But I moved to Santa Barbara and with the intention of kind of springing Jungle Fish from Santa Barbara. But then I met Chris Rowe and I realized that that was my destiny. But yeah, okay. the scene was the scene was great. It was Lagwagon was called Section 8 back then. And they played shows with Jungle Fish, Lagwagon, The Offspring, No Effects. We all played these great small, they were mostly like BFW halls, Grange halls, backyards, parties in Isla Vista, which is the college part of Santa Barbara. And all these bands ended up becoming these great bands. They were, it was the scene, the bands were really competitive. And so we competed with each other. And that's how I think such a small town like Santa Barbara ended up having all these great bands that came from there. Mad Caddies and Sugar Colt and Lagwagon and Nerf Herder and the Ataris and even bigger bands like Toad the Wet Sprocket, Dishwalla, Ugly Kid Joe. All these bands came from this teeny little town, Santa Barbara, all around the same time. And we were all competing with each other because there's only so many clubs that you can play in. And so we were all playing in the 90s in these clubs. It just kind of was this explosion that came out of there. And it was awesome. Yeah, I'll bet. I would imagine you guys were probably helping each other level up with that friendly competition. You know, you hear know somebody's how, new music. It wasn't always friendly. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it became more friendly later. In the early days, it was there was some jealousy involved. Not Not like hatred, but just more like, you know, the one thing I always told the guys in the Ataris is that we're friends with everybody, but when you go out there, I kind of looked at it like sports. You want to win, right? So if yeah. you're playing with four, with a bill with these four great bands, like we talked about earlier, you want to be the best of those four bands. And by bringing it, you know, bringing, bringing it and doing the best you can, I think what it did is cause the other bands to step up their game. And so that kind of, that kind of vibe was going on in Santa Barbara. And to this day, I, be, I believe in that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we used to go, we're going to kill it. That was like our motto. We're going to kill it tonight, you know, or just crush it. And yeah, I think it's cool that you guys, there was that camaraderie later, but I would imagine when you're young, you have that scarcity mindset. And like you said, there's only so many venues, there's only so many shows, only so many big acts coming through that you can open for. In talking to Ben, he mentioned the same thing in Jacksonville. There was a lot of really talented bands out of Jacksonville in the early 2000s and the late 90s, but there was only a couple of venues, you know, and if Strung Out came to town, who's going to open for Strung Out or who's going to open for uh, Live Wagon? Yeah, so you yeah, got to be on your more- A-game. Ours was more like, oh man, did you hear that Buck Wild got a European tour? Or did you hear that the caddies are going with no effects? We're like, oh, that should be us. You know what I mean? That, sure. should, that should be my 
that should be my tour. So that, that's kind of the vibe how we were, but it ended up, we're all great friends now and we all look back and it was a great time to be in a band for sure in Santa Barbara. Yeah, absolutely. Side note, Santa Barbara is my favorite place to visit in California. We used to go there and stay with a friend. It was always the most beautiful place. You'd wake up and you'd feel the mist from the ocean. It was just otherworldly some days. And it's still incredible. I believe it. And then fast forward, we are in 91. And how long was Junglefish a band? When did you guys break up? Oh, it was about 88 to 96. I did Junglefish. Okay. So it's a long time. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a long time and it went through a, a bunch of different, you know, it was me just trying to get out there, a bunch of different lineups. It was always just me, but I had over the years, different drummers, different, different uh, guitar players. Okay. Mike started breaking up a little bit here and I think it was due to my internet actually. So we restarted the router and then we got back on the call and started right back up with a conversation. So here it is. I have a good buddy that lives in Lawrence. Uh, his name's Roger Feliciano and he oh, actually... Cool works at the university there uh, at, uh, at one of the places, the food, uh, one, in one of the dorms, the food places. Cool. So, right. Yeah. At KU? Yeah. At KU. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah. You guys played in Lawrence quite a bit. I probably saw you guys play Lawrence at least a few times, but that yeah. fat tour came through. I'm pretty sure that was at the bottleneck here in Lawrence, it, it Kansas. Was. It was. Yeah. 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 That was a great show. It was 99. So I would have been 16. Yeah. Classic tour. Incredible lineup. I mean, Fat was just all the rage at that point. I was discovering so many bands from their compilations. But before that, 1996, a few years before that, you met Chris Rowe. You were mentioning that before. Can you just tell me that story? Because he was from Indiana. What made him eventually make his way out to California? So Chris was this like mad genius who really didn't go the normal route to school. His parents really cultivated his obsession for music and they let him they, they gave him the tools, guitars and four track recorders and drum machines and things like that. So he basically was a mad scientist creating these cool bands. He would do whole projects like a hardcore project, a pop punk project, a electronica project. And he would record these and then shoot out demo tapes to people. So the Ataris was just one of his, his little projects. And he would show up at punk shows like the Vandals came through Indianapolis. He lived in Anderson, Indiana, not far out of, out of Indianapolis. And he went to one of these shows and he gave the merch guy a demo tape. And then it wasn't but a few months later, he got a call from Joe Escalante, the bass player for the Vandals, and said, hey, uh, I'd like to sign your band. I'm starting a new record label. At that time, Kung Fu had only had assorted jelly beans, was the only band that they had signed. So the Ataris was going to be the second band. And Chris thought it was a prank call, hung up the phone. On Joe. <laughs> and, uh, awesome. and, and so Joe called him back and said, I'm serious. And Chris kind of said, well, I don't really have a band. I, it's kind of me. And I have a friend that plays guitar. Chris was playing bass at the time and a drum machine. And he said, well, we'll figure something out. So why don't you come to California and we'll, we'll make an album. And so basically Joe flew Chris out to California. Well, first he said, we're going to have this guy play drums on your record, which is Derek Floor, the drummer for Lagwagon. Derek Lagwagon. recently left Lagwagon and Joe was trying to help him out. Um, Derek was not Lagwagon, but was an amazing drummer. And so he, he got Derek together with Chris. So they started talking on the phone and Chris just happened to have, Derek had a friend 
named Joanne, this girl that Chris kind of struck up a romance with over the phone while he was talking to Derek. So they all decided, Chris decided he was going to go out and stay at Joanne's in Santa Barbara. Joanne just happened to be the singer of a band I played in also. Besides Junglefish, I played in a band called Beaker, which was sort of a 90s alternative. It was like garbage. You know, the the girl, the riot girl thing was big. And so I was yeah. playing, playing in that band. We were actually getting looked at by a bunch of majors and stuff like that. It was a good band. Beaker was awesome. And Chris came out to stay with Joanne and Chris and I instantly bonded over our, you know, our taste in music. Uh, he was so, he was five years younger than me, but so worldly when it came to music. His dad loved classic rock and roll. And so we kind of struck up a friendship over our love for music. So I was painting houses in the college section of town and I decided, hey, Chris, why don't you come help me out while you're making this record? And so they, they started playing the demos for me of Anywhere But Here. And I was just blown away. It was light years beyond anything. I wanted to quit every band I'd ever been in. And instantly I was like, okay. I, without asking him, I did everything possible to make sure he asked me to be in the band. So he did do an early lineup that did two tours. There's two little, little teeny tours with Marco from Sugar Colt played bass and Derek played drums, but that imploded quickly. Uh, they were a lot different than Chris and Chris and I were friends. And so he had gotten in 97, he was like, I, I don't think this is working. I'm going to go home to Indiana. Uh, he's like, I I'll give it one more shot. And so he said, I have this Dance Hall Crashers Unwritten Law Tour. Do you want to play bass? And I was waiting for that. I was like, oh, yeah. He's like, we got to find a drummer. So we had two weeks to find a drummer to go on that tour. And so we started auditioning drummers right away. And I brought in the drummer that we were that was playing in Beaker to audition. And he was good. But while we were at the audition in Santa Barbara, had this kind of like these little tiny houses is what they would look like now. Recording studios, this guy rented out these tiny houses for bands to, to practice in. And in one of the other tiny houses, we heard this crazy drummer. We're like, who is that? And so we went and knocked on the door and that's where we met Chris Knapp. He was, wow. he was in, in there. He was, I think he was 18 at the time. That's what we called Dang. him, Kit. Kid was his nickname. He was yeah. just, he was insane. He was rocking so hard. So all the demo tapes that we were going to give to this other drummer, we just gave to him and said, <laughs> we said, you want to go on tour in 10 days? He's like, yeah, for sure. And so we said, okay, we're going to have practice tomorrow night. So the next night we had practice and he just happened to be also rehearsing that studio he was in was with Marco Pena, who became our first Atari's guitar player. And Marco sort of forced his way in, said, if you're going to take my drummer, I discovered this kid. That's why <laughs> I discovered if you're going to take him, you're going to take me. And Chris was trying to go, hey, this is going to be hard enough to, for me to teach Mike and, and kid the songs. I can't deal with you. And he basically forced himself on us and, and it worked. And like 10 days later, we went on that tour and wow. we did really well. It, it worked. And then that that parlayed into a little Vandals tour. And I remember Joe, very skeptical. Joe was very skeptical the first time he met us because he knew that Chris had lost Marco from Sugar Colt and Derek. And he thought, oh, man, that, that's the end of this, right? Yeah. And then we showed up and we played a, a Vandals Christmas show at the Palace in Hollywood. And we really did well. And he was like, wow, I think this is going to work. And it, it just kind of it kind of took off from there and was a, a slow, slow grind. But a funny thing I don't talk about too often is that 
early when I joined the Ataris, I saw these tours that Chris had been given by Joe and I thought, oh, th this is going to be easy. We're just going to, Chris's songs are amazing. We're just going to get these big tours and we're going to kill it and do it. But Joe basically was hard on us. He said, okay, you know, I've given you these couple tours. It's time for you to make your own way. So that's when Chris and I got to work on really networking. We, we grabbed a copy of Maximum Rock and Roll's Book Your Own Life. And we started making calls and we would book these tours. We played, you know, the first couple runs across America were basements, backyards, you know, VFW halls, all that stuff. And we would go out for 90 days and eat off the dollar menu and sleep in the van and get from one show to the next. But it was enough that the, anywhere but here was enough to get us shows. And then that's when Chris started writing the songs that would become Blue Skies. And we actually recorded Blue Skies before Look Forward to Failure. But it was when San Dimas was put on Life in the Fat Lane, like he said. Fat Mike heard that song and he said, I really want to put this on here. But to put this on here, you have to do an EP for Fat. So we took two songs off Blue Skies and we rushed into the blasting room in Fort Collins. And we, I remember we, I mean, we were so broke that we slept on the floor of the blasting room and Bill and Stefan of the Descendants recorded four songs that would be for the four songs and then the two from Blue Skies. And that ended up coming out first. But once San Dimas hit life in the fat lane, it was like our, our shows completely changed. It was yeah. like the same place we'd go to, there'd be like 20 people there. All of a sudden there was like 200 people there. Wow. And we're like, San Dimas is just one of those songs. It was like Boys of Summer. San Dimas and Boys of Summer, they're just one of those songs that transcend. When you played it live, you could tell it was like something special. And it's, yeah. it's, it's hard for a band to ever have one of those songs, let alone a couple of them. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a song that I think people immediately connected to. It is certainly a song that I connected to. I heard it on that comp and I immediately was hooked. And I think a lot of my friends, similar ages, we grew up playing in bands. We were listening to a lot of similar music around that time, a lot of epitaph and fat records, but there was a few outlier bands that were a little bit popular. And we're talking a little bit more about relationships, which is why I think it connected with people like me. Right. But I remember hearing that song. I mean, the Ataris, I know for some people, Boys of Summer in this diary, probably synonymous with the Ataris. But for me, it was always San Dimas because that was the first song I heard. And then going back and listening to Anywhere But Here, which Anywhere But Here sounded really great too, sonically. For the time, I think it sounded really good. So it, it makes sense that that got you some shows. And that was probably, I would imagine, a couple of really great tours touring with Dancehall Crashers and Unwritten Law, who were both doing really well at the time in the mid to late 90s. Yeah, those, those bands taught us how to tour. Unwritten Law was one of those bands that it was one of our, it was my first real tour. And I remember the first night was in Las Vegas and Unwritten Law let us sleep on their, the floor of their hotel room. And that really set the tone for us of how we treated bands that opened for us also. It was like, you know, they were on the radio and, and they were signed to a major label deal and they were letting these guys that they didn't even know, but the camaraderie was like, this is how you treat baby bands and honestly that really set the tone for us on how we treated bands that opened for us down the road yeah that's cool it's punk rock i love it yeah. i love the camaraderie yeah i would imagine there was a lot of debauchery around that time too <laughs> i was gonna ask you you recorded look forward to failure the ep after you had finished blue skies that right. makes a little bit more sense contextually now that i think about it because back then i wasn't sure but i remember 
getting my hands on a copy of Look Forward to Failure before Blue Skies. How did that work as far as your contract with Kung Fu? Because I know Fat Records, they're famous for doing one-off deals and things like that. But was Joe hesitant to have you guys release those songs? Joe and Fat Mike went to summer camp together as kids. And so they'd known each other way before they were both punk rock. And so this relationship had blossomed over many years. And I don't know the exact specifics of it. I just know that Joe, he was a little hesitant, but I believe Mike told him, you know, this is going to make you sell a lot more records on Kung Fu if this happens here. And he was absolutely correct. And it worked out for both of them completely. And and for me, for me, I love Joe is my hero, is my absolute, you know, if I have a mentor in life and in music, it's Joe Escalante. But, you know, Mike is a smart when it comes to punk rock and he knows he knows what he wants. And mm-hmm. that, you know, and to have for me personally, I love No Use for a Name, Good Ridden, Strung Out. And so to have a release on Fat Records was like sort of my like, oh, man, it's it's all come together here. So we had a deal with Kung Fu. We had we had an EP on Fat Records and, you know, it was all coming together. Best of both worlds, man. I mean, I bet that was really exciting. It was exciting hearing bands like the Ataris on Fat Records. You know, I think it helped them bridge the gap between some bands that came later in the 2000s that were a little bit more mid-tempo, I think. Yeah. You know, because at first with Fat Records, it was completely synonymous with that RKL, really fast, double-time beat, no effects, no use for a name, which I love. I grew up on that. I'm kind of obsessed with that. But Atari's was a little bit more mid-tempo, a little bit more... Like I, think, Rise I think it opened the door for like Rise Against bands. Yeah, like, and yeah. Against Me and yeah. even bands like the Messengers that are doing really, really well today. Yeah. I can hear parallels there. That's so cool. That's rad. So then Blue Skies came out in 99. Look forward to failure. Did that come out in 1998 towards the 98, end? Yeah. Okay. I thought so. Yeah. Okay, cool. Do you know why that EP isn't on any of the streaming networks? I don't know. I've always wondered. I, yeah, I've I, always wondered that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think it's because if I was to guess, I mean, this is just a sheer guess. It's because it's not considered. I was shocked when they when they released it finally on vinyl. Right. So they just did that last year, I believe. Um, Yeah, it's it's awesome. I I love I love the vinyl of that. And and it sold out quick. But um, I don't know. I, I would imagine that it has something to do with the deal Kung Fu and Fat had about releasing our music at that time. But okay. again, that's pure speculation. I said, I said, ask Joe that question. That, that's a good question for Joe. Yeah, for sure. I know there's a lot of controversy with Spotify right now, but I use Spotify and I'm always looking for that EP, but it is on YouTube. So yeah. there's, there's ways to listen to it. Actually, I still have a physical copy of it and it's in an old CD case. It's definitely in there. Yeah, I just got sent a couple, couple, a black version and a colored version of the vinyl because um, they just came out last year and oh, it's so beautiful. I love it. And, you know, we put ourselves on the cover of that as like tongue in cheek. It was sort of my idea. I think a little bit of, Hey, we should do uh, no one on fat records puts their selves on the cover of a record. Chris decorated it with the fortune cookie and the look forward to failure was an homage to the smoking pops. We really, into the smoking popes which is destination failure was a record we were listening to at the time so so yeah it's sort of an homage to all that 
But at the same time, I love that we, we put it. I, I was thinking more of like, I love the Beatles, right? So the Beatles in the early days always put themselves on their album covers. And so I was thinking, you know, it'd be really cool. I mean, I think bands do it more these days, put themselves on the covers. But at that time, nobody was doing that. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's almost become iconic in that way. I remember looking and seeing you guys actually physically on the thing. Were you surprised by the success of Blue Skies after that? Or did you guys sense there was something in the air after San Dimas did so well on that compilation? I think that from San Dimas on, it just became... I guess you could say surprises, but San Dimas all the way through Boys of Summer was just like one thing after the next, which was like, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. How is this happening? You know what I mean? I I was a punk rocker, as you can see, going back to, to high school and back yeah. in, in 85, when I, 84, when I started my first band, there's no way punk bands were going to the major labels and Green Day and Nirvana changed all that. And then I started to think, wow, maybe this is possible. And then I met Chris and I thought, well, this is the guy that probably can do it for me. But then again, when it's happening, you're like, you know, you go on stage in London for the first time and you're like, how am I here? Or, or Tokyo or Sydney, you know, and then right. it just builds after that. Then the next thing you know, the major labels are taking you to dinner and you're, you're going, whoa, whoa, slow down. Now, we recorded Chris and I would do all the dinners with the major labels and we recorded all through blues from blue skies, look forward to failure. And finally we signed to Columbia, but we had been courted and taken out to dinner. We would go, me and Chris, just as a joke, even, even for a time when we had no intention of going to the majors, we would have them take us out to dinner at, <laughs> at the fanciest place or whatever, just so that, just so that we like, Oh, let, well, let's, let's make them buy us a bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> free dinner. And listen to what they have to say. And most of them didn't get it at all. Didn't get punk rock. They were just trying to find bands, you know, because Green Day and The Offspring were blowing up, right? So they were yeah. trying to find your next Green Day and The Offspring. But it wasn't until the early 2000s that Columbia seemed like, seemed to us like they got it. But sad thing is, is just like every major label story you ever hear, and that, that's a story for later too, is that, uh, you know, the people that there and, and find you, they end up leaving the label and then you're stuck with a bunch of people that don't get you anymore so yeah yeah and that was happening so much around the late 90s and the early to mid 2000s as well i remember when mca dissolved I remember I ran into a friend of ours. His name was Kyle. He played for this band called Alistair. We had met him through playing shows and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember running into him and told me about how MCA had just fired 200 people. And I just thought, wow, what was happening? I don't know. It was a little disorienting, but I didn't really know anything about the music industry at that point. I was still a teenager and we were just playing shows and trying to book tours. And yeah, we had an amazing A&R guy at Columbia, Tim Devine. He yeah. actually ended up, he, he was, I think he, he became where he was because he signed the clash, you know? So he really got it. And he, he was amazing, but even those guys, they just move on, you know, yeah. something else. And when he's gone, you're like, Oh, who do I talk to? And this guy sure. has his own agenda of people. And that that's, that's the deal with majors that that's tough. So, yeah, I can imagine. So you get somebody in your corner and then they take off and then you've got somebody that you're stuck with essentially. And they may be thinking the same thing too. And they want you to head in a different direction. And I can imagine that's pretty frustrating. You said you guys recorded by a bunch of major labels. I think around that time, 
anytime I would go to a local show, I'd see at least a couple of people and they were sporting an Atari shirt. I remember seeing that logo with the stars, the dark blue shirt. I think even at one point I had that shirt. I think in the underground, you guys were blowing up in the Midwest. I saw it all over the place. And you guys were probably getting quartered by the majors pretty early, right? Like maybe around 99, right after Blue Skies. Yeah, it started It started Blue Skies, 99. Yeah, 99, 2000. And we finally signed to Columbia, 2001. So it was about three, okay. three years of no, no, we're not going to do it. No, no, we're not going to do it. And it was after End is Forever that I think, Chris, we started to branch out. Obviously, End is Forever was a little more musical. Yeah. We were going and and you know, for us, I think we really wanted to reach as many people as we could. And Chris is a great songwriter. I mean, he comes from a place where he loves the replacements and Pete Yorn and Bill Spill and these great singer songwriter type bands. And he wanted to see, you know, how far he could go with that. And and he did yeah. a great job. Did you guys have to fulfill your contract with Kung Fu? Is that why we did. It Is Forever didn't come out on a major? I always wondered because I thought for sure End Is Forever was going to come out on a major label. But I didn't know if you guys had to fulfill a contract, maybe two full lengths with Kung Fu or something. Three. three. Yeah, we had three with Kung Fu. And that was okay, so- Anywhere Blue Skies, End Is Forever. And That's we right. did have to fulfill that contract, but would have Joe sold out of that contract? I'm sure, I'm sure he would have, you know, I'm sure if we really wanted him to, but we weren't quite ready yet. I think we wanted End Is Forever to come out on Kung Fu too. So yeah. it, was, it wasn't like we were pushing to get off either. Sure. Yeah. And I think ultimately it was a good decision because it was an uphill trajectory. From the second I heard San Dimas, it seemed like it was an uphill trajectory. And and then you guys signed to Columbia. Was it pretty shortly after the release of End is Forever? Uh, it was like a year. It was a little a bit. Year. You know, it's it's all kind of blurry now. But, yeah. but we, we put out in 2001, Let It Burn came out, which was our That's B-side right. and our split with Useless ID. Useless ID. And, yeah. And so we we had that in the bag to keep our fans, so to say, to keep product out there. And we wanted that to be out there. And then we spent all of 2002 working on what would ultimately become So Long Astoria. So, so Long Astoria. The one, the one thing Columbia did tell us, which was we were tour, we were playing 300 shows a year from 97 through 2001. So I think for five years, we played 300 shows a year. We didn't stop and we were playing all over the world, you know, Canada, US, Australia, Europe. And we just kept going round and round and round. And it was Columbia that said, okay, now you're going to stop. And we're going to, you know, they, they rented, they helped rent this mansion in Hollywood, uh, the Whitley house. Chris lived at, at his own place and I lived at my own place. And then Kid and John lived at this place and we would go rehearse there and we would write songs and they just told us we want you not to tour and concentrate on the record and and that's where the story came out of and that's great and i think it was a natural progression so long astoria it felt a little bit more grown up you guys were talking about different things i know that was intentional because i remember reading chris he wanted to write about different topics and things like that move away from relationships which is very easy to write about i'm still writing songs about relationships right. so it makes sense but you don't want to be totally cliche and say it was a little bit more mature or grown up, but I mean, clearly there was a progression there. What made you guys decide to work with Lou? Well, you know, we went through a lot of producers that we, we, we wanted the best producer for that record. And, and like everything at that time, we wanted to be as picky as possible. And that's mostly yeah. Chris. Chris has an idea of, you know, they're most, for the most part, his songs. I wrote the music to one song in that record. John wrote the music to one song in that record. And Chris writes all the lyrics. So, and it's, it's Chris's band, 
you know, he's the yeah. art in the band. Right. And so you wrote the hero dies in this one. Yes. The music. Yeah. And that was in tribute to your father. It was, I wrote, I had different lyrics to that song and it came from an older song of mine, but Chris wrote the lyrics to that song. It's about his grandmother. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. It's a great I think, song. Uh, I think the internet mixes it up a little bit. Uh, sure. But that's how it goes. But with yeah, Lou, you can't trust the internet. <laughs> yeah, you can't. No. But with Lou, Lou was, you know, Lou did A Boy Named Goo by the Google Dolls. And I love that record. And Sugar, the Sugar by Bo- the Bob Mould band, Sugar. And oh, yeah. we love both of those records. And we loved it sonically. And Lou goes way back to the punk rock days of Boston, you know. And yeah. so we, we just. Who's thought, yeah. And we just thought, okay, then let's, uh, you know, we went through and talked to a bunch of different producers. We went to have meetings and Lou was just the guy that really we connected with. Yeah. Who were some other people that you were talking to? I'm always fascinated by this. Some people, they don't, <laughs> they don't really pay attention to who is behind the dials and records things, but I'm always fascinated by the yeah. idea of who you may have recorded we with. To, to, really, we, we batted around everybody that, that was really big at that time, but and, and I think we really kind of either wanted Lou or Steve Albini. And I don't think Steve Albini wanted anything to do with us. <laughs> that um, would have been a different record, Mike, yeah, for sure. Right. We, we wanted to do the heart-shaped box thing. So, uh, but uh, no, I, I think it, it just came down, it came down to Lou. So. Okay. It makes sense. I would imagine you guys had a much bigger budget, but I listen to So Long Astoria now and that record still sounds incredible it sounds sonically like it could have came out yesterday the guitars are just like in your face very very punchy the bass tones the drums sound great that snare just cracks right out of the mix you had a lot of really great pop rock records coming out around that time and really i think leveling up the playing field for a lot of that style of music at the time i think of a record like bleed american and so long astoria in the same vein because they sound so fresh and modern even today so i think you guys made a good decision there with lou how long did you guys you said you were writing a bunch of songs how long was pre-pro i think pre-pro production with Lou was a month, but I think we worked on it. Like the one thing that we did was we, Chris honed in all the songs and we played them over and over. And what we did was we went to Orange Whip Studios and laid them all down. And that's what is the record that's out. If you see it, uh, the So Long Astoria demos, Mm -hmm. which is us playing those songs live. So oh, we cool. actually played all those songs live before we went in and later. And those sound great. I mean, those are a great, great record all in its own, you know? Yeah. And that's yeah. us just all getting into a room and playing the songs live. So, yeah. I mean, we knew those songs frontward and backwards. And then that, that's why it didn't. And then Lou came in and, and Chris and Lou just worked really, really hard on tightening everything up and, and finalizing it. It was great. Yeah. And, Super great. It sounds like you guys had a lot of time to work on it too, because you guys were experimenting with different dynamics, different pedals, and there's a lot of cool guitar tones. A lot, a lot of that. A lot yeah. amps, pedals, guitars, a lot, a lot of that. If you ask John, John will tell you that it, it was awesome at the time, but I don't think he ever wants to go that deep again. So, <laughs> That's so. fair. Yeah. yeah, it's a little bit more rock and roll, a little less punk rock. So I get that for sure. Yeah. And I remember his band Beefcake. He was in that band before the Ataris, right? That's right. And we played we played Kansas City with Beefcake and maybe Lawrence. I don't know if we did or didn't, but uh, we definitely pl- went through Kansas City with Beefcake. I remember because 
I think one of my birthdays ended up being in Kansas City at this. We played with Beefcake. God, I want to say it was 97 at a, um, we played after an open mic night or something. It was like open night, open (laughs) mic night, the Ataris and Beefcake. It was terrible, but we had a blast. You know, those, it's one of those good, good memories. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. I wonder if I was at that show Yeah, I'm trying to think of where you guys played, but that's cool. That's rad. Okay. Well, cool. There's no shortage of places to go here. I have a lot of questions for you. I was listening to the party like a Rockstar interview, which was a lot of fun. Thank and you. you mentioned, and I think I had read this previously that Chris was a little reluctant to record the cover of the boys of summer. How did that come about? What was the impetus to recording that song? Well, well, that song, I always tell people that song found us. It was like, as you've said, we, we had a great career. We didn't want to be known as the band that was known for a cover song, but to the mainstream world, that's exactly what we are. We fought against that tooth and nail because we said, you know, I'll give you an example. I love Alien Ant Farm and they were friends of mine. We did the Warp Tour together. However, yeah. they're, they're known for their Michael Jackson cover song. That's Absolutely. basically what they're known for. We have this great indie career. And so you know, we didn't want to put that on our in our big major label record. We, we wanted, as you can tell, we really took our time on that record and wanted to make a piece of art. So we didn't want to dampen it with something. We didn't want something. I wouldn't say Boys of Summer dampen it on the, in the opposite. I, I think it's amazing and it's a part of us. But it was something we fought that was a part of us. And, and basically... You know, the story is this Chris and I were in a truck stop on our way to South by Southwest and we heard Boys of Summer over the, you know, they play in the gas stations when you're shopping the yeah. songs through the ceiling. We heard Boys of Summer and we started talking about our memories of our memories of Boys of Summer, both of us, how much we love that song. Yeah. And then we had two warm up shows, El Paso and San Antonio, before we got to Austin to play South by Southwest. And we started tinkering with it. Chris just started playing it at Soundcheck in El Paso. And I was like, wow, I was like, that sounds good. I, I really like that. And, and so we started tinkering with it. And I was like, we should play that. I was always pushing on him. We should play that side. No, no, it's not ready. And so we learned all the lyrics. Uh, the drive from uh, El Paso to San Antonio is horrific. It's like 12 hours across Texas. <laughs> and I've done that drive. Yeah, so we learned all we learned the guitar parts and stuff, and and that we premiered it the next night. We played it in Soundcheck in San Antonio, and it just sounded great. So he said, uh, "Maybe we'll play it tonight if if the crowd's feeling it." You know, he was always gauging certain songs, new songs, and things on how the crowd was going. The crowd was going crazy, and so Chris was like, "Let's try it." So we played Boys of Summer, and it was just like San Dimas. First time we played San Dimas, it was like. People went crazy and it just, it was blew the roof off. Yeah. It like found us. It was perfect for us. And so our manager was there. He had flown in that night to, to see one show. By that time we had gotten major label management and, um, so this was after Kevin Lyman. It was after Kevin, Darren Darren Lewis took over and he was managing at the time Everclear and, and he picked us up and he's he goes i want to come in and see how you guys play the night before you go to south by southwest before you play for columbia because that was their showcase columbia records showcase so he came in 
And he was there that night. We walked off the stage and he's like, oh, you have to play that tomorrow. Chris is like, no, no, we're not going to play that. <laughs> I don't want them to, to want to put that out or put that on the record. He's like, oh, you know, it'll just, it'll be a good, it'll be a good pleaser for the older guys that work for Columbia. So the next night at South by Southwest at Lizona Rosa, we played that song, Packed House. And our A&R guy, the guy I told you about earlier, Tim Devine came up right afterwards. And he's like, oh my gosh, that was great. You didn't tell me that you played a cover of that song and and so that's when he said you know i want you to record that song we're doing a soundtrack for godzilla so uh <laughs> the matthew broderick version of godzilla years ago. i remember that one yeah yeah and so he's like we're gonna put it on that soundtrack just record it when you're doing the astoria stuff so we recorded it during that time and again while we we're recording it it just sounded so good right yeah. and so yeah it just came across good and he would come in every once in a while and listen to the mixes and everything else and then one day he came in and he said hey, you know, uh, it's not going to make the soundtrack, not because it's not good, just because they opted to go with something else or whatever major label stuff that they tell you. He's like, but yeah. we want to put it on the record. And, and Chris was adamant. No, I don't want to put it on the record. You know, if we put it on the, he finally conceded after, a, you know, kind of getting pissed off, I got to tell you. And yeah. and we put it deep on the record. It wasn't even, it wasn't even in the beginning or anything like that. And th he promised, we're not going to make it a single. I promise you <laughs> we're go on the record because it's so good. So we put it on the record and Chris, you know, the black flag sticker on the Cadillac, that's Chris trying to keep that as punk rock as possible, trying yeah. to put our own, our own flair on that song. And, um, and, you know, then in this diary came out when the album came out in this diary, took off, went to number 10 for four weeks and the video was great. We did the DVD that went with it and everything was going good. And I think Chris says my reply was next. I thought it was so long a story, but the next single was supposed to come out. We had the video treatment all ready to go. And we were really, really psyched up on the next single and K-Rock started playing Boys This Summer all on their own. And they never do that in California here. And it just wow. took off. It went straight to like the hot 100, climbed the charts on that. And, and the next thing you know, Columbia tells us, this is your next single and you're going to do it or else. It was one of those, we got one of these, Chris was refusing to play it live for a while. And I tell the story on the Party Like a Rockstar podcast about how we were basically forced, look, if you don't start playing this song live, then you know, you'll know you never work in this town again, <laughs> was, was the basis of it. <laughs> and so Chris did it, you know, he wrote the yeah. shirt. He, we went on the K-Rock Weenie Roast and he wrote the Who the Fuck is Don Henley t-shirt with a Sharpie on his shirt. We went out and played that show. And then uh, and then that whole Don Henry, Henley controversy started after that. But, you know, Boys of Summer to me is, I, I love it. You know, I live in LA and I live in Hollywood, North Hollywood, and I listen to K-Rock still and I hear Boys of Summer at least every other day, you know? when Oh, I'm, really? Yeah, when I'm chilling, driving around, you know, and uh, they still play it. That's awesome. They still, they still play it, especially in the summertime. In the summertime, they play it almost every day. And so, you know, it's one of those things. And everybody talks to me about that song. Most mainstream people, you know, talk to me about that song. You know, I'll, I'll, sure. everybody who's punk rock knows about our career. But that song really transcended to the everyday person. And, and I'm really glad we did it. But I will tell you that we kind of fought it all the way. So. Yeah. 
Your band, there's a lot of serendipity that's occurred over the career of the Ataris. And just in mentioning the few things that you were talking about, like the formation of the band, you becoming a member, Joe and Fat Mike, I think when he was putting songs out on those compilations, that really would make or break bands, it seemed, or really just make bands, you know? So there was a lot of serendipitous moments. And like you said, that song just found you. And even the controversy, I wonder if that had something that propelled it too. And like you mentioned, K-Rock, not only do they not just throw songs into their rotation, millions of people listen to K-Rock, but they're also the radio station that it was like the lead domino for all the other alternative stations in in the United States. So they start playing this and then other radio stations catch wind of that. And then there's all these other markets that are spinning that song. And I know here in Kansas City, they play that song all the time. I think you guys got a pretty fair amount of In This Diary as well when it first came out. I think they were playing that song a lot too. We did. I tell people In This Diary was the first song I heard on K-Rock. I remember we were living in Hollywood at the time and I was driving... I was driving down Hollywood Boulevard and I was listening to K-Rock and I heard in this diary and I had to pull over. I was like, oh, you know, we have a little alternative station in Santa Barbara that's amazing. It's called KJE. It's still around. It's still playing great alternative music. And I'd heard my bands on KJE all the time, right? But Mm -hmm. to hear your song on K-Rock was a different level. It was like, it was like this aha moment where I pulled over and was like, oh my gosh, they're playing in this diary. I can't believe it. And then they talked about us afterwards, you know, you know, uh, you know, and it was cool, but in this diary did well, but it, I, like I tell people, it disappeared. I've never heard in this diary on the radio in like 20 years, or it hasn't been that long, but maybe like 17 years or something yeah. like that. So it's been a long time. It's like Boys of Summer lives on, but in this diary, it, as far as the radio is gone, is gone. Sure. So. But it's cool that you guys have this generational song that I'm sure people are now discovering, even in the realm of TikTok, because it's funny how these older songs, they get picked back up in social media and things like that. So very cool. I think it was a good decision on your part to do that and just added to the legacy of the band. I'm very glad we did Boys of Summer. Yeah. And it's a great story, right? And then that's not even the Don Henley part of it. Yeah. And I know you've probably told the story a lot, but it's a really great story. I was curious if you wouldn't mind, if you could tell, if you could share the the Don Henley story yeah, that you have because yeah. you actually got to speak with him, right? Well, it, yeah, it goes right off the end of the of us not wanting to play it and Chris finally playing it. He the thing is about Boys of Summer is at the time a lot of our fans and the people that were getting into us and hearing it on the radio thought that that was an Atari song. They didn't even know that the Don <laughs> Henley existed or he wrote that song. Yeah. So Chris was seeing so much of that online on the internet and getting those questions at shows that he wrote the shirt, who the fuck is Don Henley in a Sharpie. And we we walked off stage from that show the first time that we actually played it live to fulfill Columbia's uh, threats. (laughs) Their wishes. uh, Yeah, their wishes. And a Rolling Stone photographer was waiting at the bottom of the stage and just said, oh, you guys stand right there. And Snap took a picture of us. And it was awesome because Chris had these Gene Simmons blood packets. And so he had blood running down (laughs) and up down his who the fuck is Don Henley shirt. And then they put in the next issue of Rolling Stone. And once it hit, we got a call from our manager, from Darren Lewis. And he said, hey, we got a problem. We're like, problem? He's like, yeah, whoever 
wrote a quick blurb. It wasn't even an article. I would call it a blurb. It was like a paragraph about the show and about the about us being an up-and-coming band or whatever. They had t- taken the Who the Fuck is Don Henley shirt out of context and made it seem like that we were saying we were better than Don Henley, which was really odd to us. We're like, that's dumb. That's nothing. But it yeah. got back to it got back to Don Henley. And Don oh, Henley, wow. Don Henley was not happy about it. And so we had an upcoming date to play Boys of Summer at the Major League Baseball All-Star Game at Cellular Field in Chicago. And so we were excited. We're all big baseball fans. All of us are. And so we were, we were like all, uh, they asked us, do you want to play the all-star game? We're like, heck yeah. Are you crazy, man? Of course we want to play the all-star game. So to play, we didn't know this at the time, but our manager told us, well, to play Boys of Summer anywhere in the world is fine, but to play it on live TV, you need the songwriter's permission. So Don Henley, after he saw the the Rolling Stone thing, I guess he reads Rolling Stone or his manager does or somebody, he said, oh, the Ataris aren't going to play that song at the All-Star Game. And so it was like went into full crisis mode, if you will. Well, you know, MLB, you know, this was millions of people, right, that we were going to play in front of. How how can we not do that? You know, they can't change it. So they tried to go through all the normal channels, right, of this of the manager to manager and, and record label to record label. And come on, John, you don't understand. You don't understand. And finally they got down where Darren came to me after a show. I think it was after we played a Pepsi smashed. I don't know if you remember that, but we I played, do. yeah, we played with like the black eyed peas and I forgot who we were all. <laughs> um, I remember I got high with Furby that night. I remember the yellow card dudes. They did that. That was yeah. one of their big breaks. And so at that show, the black eyed peas show, the, uh, or the Pepsi smash, the, my manager came up to me. He's like, I, we can't, we, Don Henley's still saying, no, we don't know what to do. So I had an idea, Mike, you're the talker. Obviously I'm a talker. <laughs> you're the talker. The <laughs> we, we think that, we think that maybe you could call Don Henley and get to him on a personal level. I, I was like, me, how, how the hell am I going to do that? I mean, <laughs> he's like, well, I used to work for Irving Azoff, Don Henley's manager before I was your manager. And I, I still have a couple of his phone numbers, his private phone numbers, which is totally wow. crazy. Right. He's like, that's crazy. He's like, I want you to call him up yourself and explain the situation to him. I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't think, I don't think I can do this. And so we, I think at that time we were like a week away from the all-star game. I'm like, this is never, <laughs> this is never going to happen. And so the next night, I think we were on the warp tour. That was 2003 warp tour. And we, that was like after Ventura, we played that the same night. The next night was LA and Darren comes up to me. Did you call him? I'm like, I'm afraid I didn't call him. No. <laughs> next, night, next night, San Diego. He's like, you got to call him. I'm like, I'm afraid. And then the next night we played Kimmel. And so we played Jimmy Kimmel and he's like, you have to do it tonight because the all-star games in like three days, you have to call them tonight. So I had to get up my courage, you know, and we played, we played Kimmel it was such an awesome show. And I went back to my hotel room. I remember, and I dialed these numbers, the first number I dialed and it was like, I get, get my courage up. I mean, I was like scared, terrified to call Don Henry. Like, what are you going to say? <laughs> so I call him up. And the numbers disconnected. I'm like, oh my God, why was I even terrified to call? These probably (laughs) don't even work. The next number rang and it went straight to a message, like just beep. And so I just took a shot and I was a little buzzed uh, at the time. And I was just like, hey, 
you know, this message is for Don Henley. I think I said, I don't think I said Mr. Henley. I think I just said Don <laughs> Henley. I said, this is Mike Davenport. I'm the bass player for Guitaris. Uh, we want to play, you know, we, we're the ones that cover Boys of Summer and we want you to know we really respect you. And I, I went into this whole thing, which is true about my father. My father died in a car accident when I was 19. And at his funeral, he loved the Eagles. And at his funeral, uh, we played Life in the Fast Lane. And I explained all that. To, I think I almost got teary. I was so like going into the moment and into my father and things that I tried not to, to get too deep into. But I did for that call. And I said, I just want you to know, Chris didn't mean anything bad by it. And I explained to him what I just explained to you, which is like, Chris wrote it because people thought it was our song. And Chris wanted people to know this is your song. This isn't our song. And so I did it. I hung it up. The next night uh, was San Francisco Warp Tour. And of course, Darren came up to me. Did you do it? I said, I did it. I, I don't know if it worked or not, but, but I did it. And here it is. So after that night, I didn't hear anything. And we wake up and we're driving to Sacramento. And the next night after the Sacramento Warp Tour, we're supposed to fly to Chicago for the All-Star Game. On the way, on the drive to Sacramento, I get a phone call. And I look down and I see it's a Texas number, 512. I knew I know that because my wife at the time, my, my third wife was from Texas. So I go, I said, uh, I said, oh my God, I got to pull over. Because back then cell phone service was so bad, right? 2003, you were yeah. afraid the call's going to drop or something like that. So I pull over. I'm driving myself between those two shows because I had family in San Francisco. So I pull over and I answer the phone. I said, hello. He's like, Mike, I'm all, yeah, I could, I knew it right then. He's like, this is Don Henley. I'm like, <laughs> he's like, and I, I say these words often because they're burned into my brain. I remember the first part of the, of, of the conversation. And he always said, he said, I know what it's like to be young and climbing the ladder of rock and roll and everything's a big deal. Those, those are the first words he said to me. I was like, Dude. oh my God, this guy's like a poet every time he speaks, right? In real life. In, in real All life. This. Every time he's talking, <laughs> just talking to me on the phone and he's like, he's, he's spouting poetry, right? So... I started talking to him and I explained everything again. I told him about my dad again and all that. He's like, he's like, I got you. It's all good. I called my manager. You guys can play the all-star game, play it at the all-star game. It's going to be fine. He's like, tell your singer, it's all good. And, and uh, he was amazing. And I ended up actually having to call him one more time to play it on much music in Canada. We had, we played it live and I had to call him one more time because his management was like holding, holding off on it. I think Irving Azoff, his management was holding a little grudge about that. Even afterwards, I had to call one more time and uh, get permission for him. And, and he released it and let us play it the second time too live. So, and then- That's such like a cool I, story, man. Thank you for like, sharing that. That's amazing. Like, like I do tell people too, you know, I'm always the business guy. So I did pitch him to play on the MTV Music Awards. I thought, this is my ticket to get Boys of Summer. I was thinking about us, right? I was thinking, sure. How, how do I get the Ataris on the MTV Music Awards? Because they were playing Boys of Summer in this diary on, you know, on TRL and all that stuff. And so I was like, I pitched him because that was big at the time, right? You play yeah. the song with another artist. And he's like, no, I ain't gonna do that. <laughs> I was like, I was like, well, you can't, uh, you know, get mad at a guy for asking, right? So, no, I, not at all. I, I mean, you, dude, you are the businessman. That's incredible. I would have been too scared to ask him the question, but that would have been cool to see. When I was a kid, I grew up on the Eagles as well. Both my parents, they're massive Eagles fans, and I remember those songs were in the background. I remember that video. They played the crap out of that video. 
yeah. that black and white video. It was just regular rotation. You know, so I feel like that could have worked, you know, the fact that you guys out there and him maybe singing a few of the lines and then Chris sings I, a few have, of the lines. I have, I have two things to respond to that while, I, while I'm thinking in my head. You never stop learning things. Yesterday was the first time I ever found out. Now I knew Mike Campbell, the guitar player for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers co-wrote that song. I always knew that obviously because we pay. So the way it works is people always ask me, oh, do you get money from boys this summer? Well, no, of course not. We didn't write that song. However, we put that on an album that has 13 songs. So we get 12 thirteenths of the royalties from that album. And so that's how that works. But I, I didn't know until yesterday that Mike Campbell actually wrote that song for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I had always heard he wrote that with Don Henley. It's true. Wow. Don, Henley, Don Henley wrote the lyrics to that song. But Mike Campbell brought the music to that song, along with the classic guitar riff and all that, to Tom Petty. And Tom Petty said, nah, that's too poppy for us. And so, but oh the gosh. producer the producer at the time, Jimmy Iovine, was doing the new the first solo Don Henley album, Age of Innocence or End of Innocence. And so he said, I know somebody that'll like that song. So he brought Mike Campbell to Henley and they knew each other. They had partied together, the Heartbreakers and the Eagles and all that. And so he said, you should do this song. And so he actually did that song. And then I found out yesterday that Mike Campbell, because it was his birthday yesterday, so they were doing facts on the radio. Oh, nice. And I found out that he played the lead to Bad Religion's Los Angeles is Burning. I didn't know that. Really? Yeah, so those are, those are a couple, That's badass, man. couple little Mike Mike Campbell facts for you that, that I just discovered yesterday, even you know, 18 years after after Boys of Summer, the Atari's version was released. So it's one of the coolest things about music is finding out these little tidbits as you get older, you learn these little monumental facts. That's incredible. My brain immediately has Tom Petty singing Boys of Summer and it works, I, you know, like, and He's like, no, no, <laughs> too poppy. Not, not going to do it too poppy. Yeah. He That's says, crazy. It's not my vibe. And you know, him and Mike Campbell grew up together in Florida and moved out to LA together. And, but Mike Campbell's classic, like when I heard he played the lead on the bad religion, Los Angeles is burning. I was like, Oh, I hear that now. I hear yeah. that. But I didn't, I didn't put it together before, but one That's other, incredible. Another thing that that reminded me of when you said the black and white video, the funny thing about Boys of Summer is that so they you when you're on a major label and you're you're big like that we were at the time you get these video treatments from all these videographers that want to do your video and Chris such a great artist Chris Rowe is so amazing and forever uh, I, I worship the art that he has done for the Ataris and himself. And today he just released, by the way, a book of his pictures, the, his photographs and things like that. So I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. His NFTs, right? Yeah. NFTs. Yeah. So very cool. Should be really cool, but he's very talented, but people were sending us all these treatments for boys of summer and they had us like sugar Ray style, like, in a Cadillac cruising down the beach with like bikini girls. And Chris was like, do you have any idea of like the vision I have for our band? It was none of that. And that's why if you see our Boys of Summer video, it's very true to Henley's. Henley's was dark. You know what I mean? It's a dark song. Those are dark lyrics. And he had a dark video premise for his version of Boys of Summer. And that's why if you see ours, with the playing on the mountainside with the the girl with the black hair and, and the tree of life and all yeah. that. 
that is Chris's artistic vision for Boys of Summer. But some of the treatments we got for that were just so goofy that I'm sure uh, it was it was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Very late '90s, early 2000s. You had pop punk was all the rage and taking over, and it was borderline silly. I think that was what was so refreshing about a, an album like So Long Story is it had that energy, but there was certainly a depth to the lyrics and the substance of the songs that was lacking, was lacking on some on. of those records. So yeah, I can imagine you guys were getting your fair share of silly music video treatments and things yeah, like that. That's why, like you mentioned earlier, Jimmy Eat World. We really loved what Jimmy Eat World was doing we thought that they were serious about what they were doing how they portrayed themselves and their songs and their lyrics and at that time that's what we wanted to do and even if you go back to what some people would construe as silly like hey kid on anywhere but here or you know your boyfriend sucks things like that there's a seriousness there it's not just silliness there there's always been a seriousness of chris that it's masked in what seems to be maybe could be construed as silly but it was always it was always art it was always yeah so yeah i think it was more tongue-in-cheek you know we were in on the joke it wasn't i'm thinking of bands like simple plan and i'm not knocking any of those bands back in the day i listened to some of them but some of them seemed just a little bit more manufactured and it was less about the art and more about the bright colors and things like that. I was in a pop punk band. We started in 2000 and we grew up listening to bands like the Ataris, but we were also heavily influenced by bands like Bad Religion, Green Day, NoFX, the Southern California skate punk scene and everything. So we wanted to have a little bit more emotional depth to our music as well. I think that's why I gravitated to bands like the Ataris and things like that. One more quick fact about the Boys of Summer. You guys landed on Black Flag, but he mentioned other band names. Right. Yeah. Did you say there was 40 other band names well, that he mentioned? If you go back, I don't know if you remember the song that we did, The Radio Still Sucks, but that was a 30 second song. So remember the 101 bands doing 30 second songs? It was a comp on fat. And yeah. we did a song called The Radio Still Sucks. Now, we first did a song. We were recording End Is Forever when that came out. And we were at the Blasting Room in Fort Collins where we did both Look Forward to Failure and End Is Forever. And when we were out there, Fat Mike calls and says, oh, I'm doing 101 bands, 30 second song. So send send me a song. So Chris wrote uh, the song that we ended up calling uh, Blue Skies, Broken Hearts, Next 12 Exits. It was on the Let It Burn EP later, the Let It Burn Split. That's right. Um, but he wrote that song and he sent it to Fat Mike. Fat Mike calls back and says, I, I don't want this college rock stuff. He's like, it's more, it's more of an emo song, right? It's not, it's not like a punk song. So Chris is like, oh, I'm going to show him. I'm going to write three songs that sound like no effects. So he wrote three songs that uh, two of them, or maybe all three of them, ended up being on the, on the Let It Burn split also. The radio still sucks. Fat Mike was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so he puts that on. So Chris always loved naming bands, right? Bands that he loved and bands that he didn't love in songs. So I think that The Boys of Summer was just a progression of that, of how he likes to name bands in songs, you know? He went through the progression, all his favorite bands at the time, Built to Spill, Jawbreaker, Sticker on a Cadillac, Descendant Sticker on a Cadillac. He went through them all, but... Just like Boys of Summer found us, I swear Black Flag just found us. It was just like you play them all back and you're like, oh, wow, that that yeah. that works. And it it's iconic, right? That's that makes that song as much as anything else is the Black Flag sticker on the Cadillac. So, yeah, it was the first thing I noticed when I heard that song. That is so cool. They switched the yeah. name of the band. And it wasn't. 
I don't think it was the first thing Chris sung at all, because I think he went through the progression of, of who Chris is very in the moment of who he was listening to at the time. I don't think that that was the first thing that he, he sung, but yeah. it, once we played him back, that was just like, Oh, you can't, you can't pick anything else. That just works. It's just sure. there. So. And what a nice tribute to Bill Stevenson too. Yeah, exactly. Really cool. Yeah. And, and Chris was conscious of that too. I think he would rather put Descendants sticker on a Cadillac, yeah. but uh, uh, don't mind my 11 year old running behind us. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, uh, she's, she's getting her cat. So <laughs> I love her, it, man. Her cat with the jacuzzis, right? This is uh, my office is in the sunroom and the jacuzzi's in the corner and the cat sleeps on the jacuzzi top because nice. it's nice and warm. Very cool. I don't know if you could hear my puppy is barking in the background. Probably a car. (laughs) Yeah, this is a lot of fun. This is very illuminating. This record that I've been listening to for so long. You mentioned the Yellow Card, Rufio, and Sugar Colt tour. I would imagine that was a fun one. Were there any other noteworthy tours on that record cycle? Because you guys were playing some big places. I remember we were on tour, my band Game Time. We went down to San Diego. Is that where the Glass House is? Or is that that more north? Glass House is in Pomona. So Pomona, Pomona, that's right. Pomona, but Glasshouse is one of those iconic places that we started in opening for the Vandals and bands there and then ended up doing our own headlining shows. It's just was it was just us. I think I think I remember them saying a stat of like of all the records we sold, 50% of our records we sold were in Orange County, California, and then the wow. other 50% were in the rest of the world. So wow. it was like it was something crazy like that. It, it was outrageous. And the glass house is one of those places that we would play and they would just pack, pack up against yeah. there. But, yeah, we had a night off on tour and, and we saw that you guys were playing. Okay, we're gonna go see the Ataris. And I'm pretty sure you guys played two shows and Audio Karate opened both. Awesome. But it was a great show, and I remember it was right after a story had come out. And you guys sounded amazing that night. I've always wondered because you left the band, you parted ways with the band and Chris in 2005. What, I mean, that's in the grand scheme of things, that's only two years because so long a story came out in 2003. What happened from that time period? You guys were probably on the road for at least a year and a half. We were. It's so weird how that all that happens. But at the time, it's sort of like, I never really quit. And Chris, I never really, I was never fired, right? I just sort of started doing, Donald Spence is my singer in Versus the World. And he helped me a lot. He would stand in for Chris. And I've told this story many times too. uh, When Chris would go away doing photography and things like that, he would stand in for Chris in the Ataris. He worked at our record store in Santa Barbara. The Ataris owned a record store called Down on Haley. And so we would rehearse the Astoria songs and we would ask Donald, Donald, jump in. So Donald actually helped us write uh, The Hero Dies in this one and The Final Touches. And All You Can Never Know Is What You Learn or I can't remember the name. (laughs) John song on that on Astoria. And so basically we were we were all working together. And during that time is when I saw Donald. I was like, wow, this is he's incredible. And I saw bands like Rise Against, heavier bands were kind of coming up at the time. And Chris was going more in a singer-songwriting phase. And the album that would come next for the Ataris, the the only real album that that I'm not on, was really not, I mean, I really wasn't into it as much as I was into what I was doing with Donald. And so I started writing these songs with Donald and Kung Fu signed us. 
And that became the first versus the world record. And instantly, no use for a name, who Tony had been my friend for many years, just sort of took us under his wing. And we went to Japan, we went to uh, Europe. And basically, I just, in 2005, uh, the first versus the world record came out and we just took off. And that, that's basically how it went from there. Yeah. And I, I kind of just didn't look back. And it wasn't, wasn't until, I think we went two years, to three years till like 2008 that I realized, you know, that I wasn't in the Ataris anymore, you know? So, but it, I, I think it was just sort of this thing where we had been together for 10 years at the time. It had been 96 to, to 2005. And I think that we had just, all of us just kind of needed a break. Like I said, we had played 300 shows a year and Kid had left the band before me about three months. And it was, it was, I played a couple shows without Kid as the drummer. And I kind of thought, I'm not really feeling this. And I sort of just gravitated to Donald and we just threw ourselves into that first versus the world record. And I think that that's when I just sort of said, this is where I'm going. And it wasn't that we just didn't talk for a while, right? It wasn't like we were talking bad or whatever. And, and at the same time, I will tell you, we were all, me, me and Kid were partying pretty good. We, we weren't 100% in our heads. Chris was always pretty sober, Chris Rowe. And I got to commend him for that. And had I not been doing drugs and, and drinking like I did, I probably would have made some different decisions. But, you know, yeah. that, that's just the path that, that I took. And uh, Hindsight's you know, 2020, my right? friend. It just yeah, is. Exactly. And then, you know, I've been there. So I, I appreciate you being transparent and sharing that with me because I think we all, especially being in bands, I mean, you guys were a big band. You had a lengthy career. I'm sure you guys were having fun. I'm sure the shows were a lot of fun, a lot of emphatic and enthusiastic crowds and things like that. Chris wasn't it was a good time. Let me put it like this. Chris wasn't stoked on our partying. And in 2005, with Donald and Tony and No Use for a Name with Versus the World, No Use for a Name, I kept the party going for like three more years. So yeah. we just kind of kept, kept the party going. And then about 2008, I took a break. And then we got Versus back together in about 2010 with new members, Chris Flippin from Lagwagon. That's when we went on our next run. And it was then that I, I had grown up a little bit during that time and changed that Versus opened for the Ataris in England on a British tour. And I started jumping up and playing San Dimas again. And that's when Chris and I really realize that we're lifelong friends. And that's when we got the idea to do the reunion tour. And we did that. We started doing that in 2000, end of 2012, we got back together. Cool. And I played in the Atari's on and off again until 2016. So, okay. um, and nice. we're, still, we're still great friends. So. That's great. That's great to hear, man. I'm really glad to hear it. And I'm a huge fan of Versus the World too. Are you guys planning on doing new tunes or maybe resurrecting yeah, that project? Uh, we are. Donald is my best friend in the world. And uh, we talk on a weekly basis and we're, try we're trying to, to figure some things out. COVID has really put a damper. I can tell you about, about my future in music is that there should be some big announcements coming for next year. And I don't want to go out on a limb right now and say anything for sure. But we're in talks to have some fun and do some really good stuff. And, you know, I've been sober, completely sober now three years and so uh, I'm congrats, really, man. Thanks, man. I'm really excited to conquer the world. But COVID has really, really changed everything. Right. And yeah. uh, and we're, we're very COVID conscious. We're not one of these 
uh, bands that want to just try to push it. And that's fine. I get it. People need to make a living and do what they have to do. But we definitely don't want to push it until we feel like it's safe. If that makes sense. Of course. Yeah, um, I appreciate it, dude. I appreciate you saying that. Incredibly exciting. I mean, I homeschool. My 11 year old goes to a charter school. And so okay. basically, that's two days of Zoom, a Zoom kids platform called Jigsaw, but two days of Jigsaw. And then we do we do work at home. So basically I'm her teacher. So, okay. uh, and we, we started that with COVID because, you know, in LA here, it's crazy. So I don't want her really in going to public school like that. And I'd feel more comfortable doing it. I, like I told you earlier in our conversation, I went back to college after all these years. It was something I was going to college while the Ataris, when the Ataris formed. And I always said in the beginning of the Ataris, oh, I'll go back after this, after, after this ends or whatever. And it just didn't end, right? It kept going for years and years. So, so now I'm, I'm back and I'm, I'm hoping that my bachelor's degree in psychology coincides with me going back out on the road and playing music for people. So, and I'm excited. Both bands have a bright future. So that's all I'm going to say. Okay. And um, I'll be able to tell you more when I and I can. Dude, I'm going to bug you about that. Okay. I appreciate you telling okay. me that. That's awesome though. Psychology. That's yeah. rad. Yeah. That's really cool. Is that what you were going to school before for psychology? No, it wasn't. I was going to school for English before and I kind of jumped into psychology in my old age. I just kind of realized there's psychology and everything, right? Me and you talking now, raising our kids, anything we do, psychology, business, there's psychology and Absolutely. everything. And I really just kind of drifted that way. I got to admit, when I was going to school in my 20s, I wasn't as focused and really didn't realize what I wanted to do. And it's not like I really want to do anything with my psychology degree, but it's good for my children to be like, look, school's important, right? And to let them know how important it is. And, you know, who doesn't want to be like Greg Graffin or, you know, have, sure. have a little Dexter from the offspring. They, they all have degrees, you know, so. Absolutely. It's also just incredibly fascinating psychology in general, just how the mind works and how we play tricks on ourselves and the internal narratives that are going on and in, inside of all of us at any given moment. You probably follow some of the posts that I do online. I, do. Know, I, I come at it from a bit of a psychological vantage point where I'm trying to help people create these sticky habitual behaviors that they can keep for a lifetime, hopefully, or at least a long period of time. And adapting new healthy behaviors is really difficult for some people. That's, and that's what I really like about you. I really, I, I saw that before I even knew you did a podcast. I saw your posts on health and healthy behaviors and things like that. And, and like I told you three years now, not only have I concentrated on my being sober, but on my physical health as well. I turned 50, I'm 53 now. So once I turned, wow, 50, dude. yeah, once I turned 50, I was quite I was overweight and I reached at one time about 293 pounds at my worst. And I, I never wanted to put, I'm, I'm a tall guy anyway. Yeah. I was going to say you're a tall guy. Yeah. But I never wanted to push 300 pounds. And so right now I'm about 210 is what I weigh. And I just, I started, you know, realizing that there's a healthier way to live and I eat, I work out and I think it's very important. And I try to be healthy in the mind, healthy in the body. And really, you know, I just, I want to live this way for the rest of my life. I, I got to say, I, I had a great first 50 years. I think I did as much abuse as I want to do. So, so well, I think... I think the last 50, if I get that many or, or 30 or 40, I'm just going to concentrate on trying to be as healthy as possible. 
Dude, a few things. I never would, in a million years would have guessed that you were 53. You look incredibly young for your age. So kudos to you, man. That's rad. Congratulations on being sober as well. That seems to be a common thread and a theme that I'm seeing that I'm noticing with people on this podcast just over the last few months of doing interviews and things. So that's really cool. Congratulations. That's really, that's rad. I like you. I guess you could say I've been sober for I think it's four years now, four and a half years. I don't drink either, but I, yeah, I feel a lot more clear headed these days, but that's very cool, man. And I like the fact that you're still learning, you're still growing and you're still pursuing things. That's really cool. You're setting a great example too. I wanted to say that as well, going to school, like you said, you're trying to lead by example. So that's rad. Exactly. You know, it's, it's the, the one thing is, is that I'm a positive guy. I've always been positive and I've always gone after my dreams. And I think that unless you're willing to take chances, then you're going to live a life of mediocrity. And I take chances and sometimes I have big failures. I do. Um, but I believe in taking That's part of it, right? Yeah, it is. Big success is as important as big failures. And if you can't learn from your mistakes and if you can't take something positive out of everything you do, then your life is going to be more negative. You know, you have to be positive in this life and you have to do your best. Not everybody is built like we are, I don't think, and able to wake up in the morning and try to be positive. Not everyone's built like that, but I just have been lucky enough to be born that way. So, yeah, I think having an optimistic outlook is going to be more productive usually especially in the long run too. If left to my own devices, I can delve into pessimism and cynicism. So I try to remind myself the same thing, just be positive and try to look for the good in every situation. Even those setbacks, there's a lesson in there, there's things to learn. I think that too, me working on my health and and everything else, it's actually cultivated, I think, Chris, Chris, John, and I are closer than we've ever been right now, ever been, maybe even in the height of our fame or anything. And at this moment, we're just friends again. There is things in the works, but we are really like, we just text each other. We, we do this Atari's group text. We sometimes get together on Facebook and comment on things. And it's, it's nice to be just their friends and not, you know, when you're caught up in major labels and one show after another and, and you're young and you just, you know, hindsight, like you said, is 2020. Everybody looks back and thinks, but we know that we went through something together that was unique and beautiful and the adventure that people only only wish and hope for, right? So yeah. we all went through that together. And, and now as we're older, wiser, right? We appreciate that. And we appreciate yeah. each other for who we are. So, yeah, and we never gratitude. Really, with us, we were never really like, I never once was out there like, oh, Chris is this, Chris is that. Uh, we, it wasn't ever like that. It was just sort of like, we just sort of drifted apart and then we drift back together. And that's just, yeah. just sort of how our relationship has been. But we know that we're instrumental in each other's lives. Chris and I have this bond that transcends normal friendship. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's a pure friendship there. And there's, I think, great art to be potentially made if you have that pure friendship. I'm revisiting my old band and we've been recording songs and stuff. And it's been just more fun than ever. We're just purely doing it for the fun of it, which has been just a really cool thing. Well, Mike, dude, I want to be respectful of your time. I really, really appreciate you doing this. I've been a fan of your work now for over 20 years, which is kind of crazy to think about. I mean, at this point, it's been 25 years. So this is a bit of a thrill for me. Thank you for doing it. And that I mean, was awesome. You're great yeah. to talk to. And oh, I like thank you, dude. Friends with you. 
on social media is awesome also and so i appreciate the kind uh, words man yeah yeah keep keep up the positive stuff yeah if you ever need anyone to for some positive words i'm always here too so excellent uh, man i appreciate it dude and uh if you get this together you know send me whatever you do to promo it and i'll push it on my stuff too okay cool yeah no i absolutely will i've been doing a show bi-weekly but this will be the next one after next week so i will definitely hit you up but dude this has been amazing man i really appreciate you taking the time so yeah we'll stay in touch but i'm incredibly excited at the prospect of potential new music so that's very cool it's coming it's coming i promise red red okay cool i'll I'll definitely check it out all right man we'll have a fantastic rest of your night and your week and i'll talk to you soon all right take care thank you all right see you buddy Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I hope you had a good time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to help the podcast out, if you want to do a massive solid for us here at Having a Blast, if you could just leave us a review, a five-star review would be incredible. I'd really appreciate it. Wherever you listen to podcasts, another thing you could do would be to share this podcast with a friend, anyone who enjoys this type of music or personal development in general. All right, I hope you're having a wonderful day. Hopefully you're having a blast listening to your favorite records. Take care and I'll talk to you later. So close your